This is our sermon text. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God's inspired word from the New Testament. Give your attention to the reading of it. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So church life can be rough at times. Now, life out in the world has no shortage of challenges, but at times the struggles inside the doors of the church can be worse. And this is certainly the case for the congregation of the book of Hebrews. Now, in some ways, we know very little about the church to whom this book was addressed. For example, we do not know the size of the congregation. We do not know who planted it or even where the congregation was located. Now, some evidence points in the direction that the congregation might have been located within the vicinity of Rome, but this cannot be definitively confirmed. We also are ignorant of when this letter was written, possibly in the 60s, but again, we're not sure. Thus, time, setting, and location are missing for the book of this book of the Bible. And we know even less about the author. Indeed, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, we can discern that he heard the gospel from the apostles. He knew Timothy. His knowledge of the Old Testament and its sacrificial system is off the charts, and he can speak Greek like a pro-orator. And yet, despite the many guesses in church history from Paul to Barnabas to Apollos, the anonymity of the author remains. We do not know. Nevertheless, even though we don't know the facts of who, when, and where, we do have a good sense of the church's troubles. For this congregation is facing a crisis of faith and a loss of nerve. That is, external persecution and social scorn are knocking on on its door. There's conflict between the leaders and the laity. There's communal strife. Some saints have stopped attending worship. Others are spiritually lethargic. And there's a movement afoot to consider going back to Judaism. Yes, the temptation to apostatize back to the synagogue is real and pressing for this church. Dire challenges face these saints. Thus, this author writes this sermonic letter to pastorally rescue the saints, to plead with them to remain in the faith and to booster their confidence in Christ. But with so many lethal problems, where does one begin? Where do you start a sermon to a people who have one foot out of the church door already? 
If you had to counsel a saint with wavering faith and a wandering soul, what would you say? Well, this inspired author breaks the ice with God speaking. Out of the gate, he underscores the fact and attribute of God as the one who speaks to his people. The Lord reveals himself by a communication. Now, this may seem unimpressive to us upon our first impression, but it's actually huge. For speaking and communication are facts of existence. They signify a relationship, a personal bond. Objects don't talk. Dead things tell no tales. Furthermore, among the gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman world, divine communication was often in short supply, and when it did, quote, occur, it happened through exoteric signs, omens, and ecstatic oracles. Besides, by definition, idols cannot talk. But our God, the one Lord, has spoken to his people. As a personal being, he's revealed himself by talking and conveying the truth of his person and his will. Just think of where we would be without God speaking to us. Moreover, the author stresses the verbal interaction of speaking. He doesn't say God has written, but spoke. Now, it's certainly true that the spoken word of God has been written down, inscripturated, and preserved for us. But by putting in italic speaking, he emphasizes how God's word is still living and active. It's personal and relational. It, its validity and authority are ongoing, relevant, and impactful. To reject one speaking to you makes that insult that much more grievous. If you ignore your friend's email, that's not very nice. But if you blow them off while speaking face to face, this is a much worse offense. Though the author quickly contrasts two ways that God has spoken. Indeed, the opening line of verse 1 is a famously char- a charming play on the letter P. In past periods, by a plethora of particulars and a plenitude of procedures, God proclaimed to our parents by the prophets. Now, fathers here refer to the Old Testament saints, and prophets summarize the entirety of the Old Testament from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And the author characterizes the Old Testament as God speaking in many details. He used manifold modes and means. Indeed, just think of how diverse and detailed is the Old Testament. You have prose and poetry. There's genealogies and law codes. You find apocalyptic visions and love poetry, hymns of praise, and depressed dirges. We read proverbs and ritual procedures. Moreover, the variety of topics of the Old Testament are a kaleidoscope. The Old Testament talks about kings and priests, prophets, judges, kinsmen, redeemers. It covers the past and the future, judgments and blessings, covenant and kingdom. In fact, the sense here seems to be the vast number of assorted pieces. Plenty are the pieces, 
But how they all fit together can be a head-scratcher. Like a lyrical Jesse James, the prophets spun lofty metaphors of God and hid the mysterious wonders of our Lord. But how these all harmonize can evade the most astute scholar. The Old Testament is like you have all the ingredients, but you're missing the full recipe. Many parts go uh, are together clear enough, but there's always these outlying ingredients that you're baffled on what to do with. Thus, the author contrasts the diversity of the prophets with a newer speaking of God. And the antithesis is throughout. First, the author says there's the past versus the last days. This is the Old Testament versus the New Testament era. As the last days refers to our present time, the church age in which we live, and these last days further convey the idea of fulfillment, clarity, and fruition. Next, the fathers are set against us. Now, this is Abraham, David, and Ezra compared to Paul, Peter, and you sitting in the pew. Finally, and most poignant in all, the prophets are juxtaposed with the Son. Now, in these last days, God has spoken to us by the Son. There are numerous prophets compared to the singular Son. The prophets are many pieces, but the Son is the whole pie. Yet this raises, excuse me, the question of why God is uh, speaking by the Son is superior. What makes the Son better than the prophets? They are, after all, the holy prophets of old, who stood in the holy presence of the Lord to receive the word and to go forth and proclaim it. Surely this isn't disparaging of the prophets. This doesn't diminish the power and authority of God's word via the prophets. This isn't negative against the prophets, but it does amplify the Son. Thus, what is so great about God speaking by the Son? Well, the author doesn't leave us in suspense, as now he spills over line after line all about the Son. Who is this Son? First, God appointed him the heir of all things. This brings into focus servants, the prophets, compared to the firstborn son. For the heir is the preeminent one. Fathers passed on their identity, status, authority, and possessions to the son who was the heir. The son then was the master of all. He ruled and acted for the father and as the Father. But this line about being heir of all things points to the future. All things foreshadow a time when everything will be in harmony. It hints at new creation, the new heavens and new earth. For the Son to be the heir of everything indicates that he is the master and Lord of new creation. The future belongs to him. Heaven is his inheritance and his eternal domain. The Son is a title of honor and intimacy with God. And to the Son belongs all things, everything now and that which is to come, especially the glorious, undying age of new creation. And yet the Son isn't just the heir of heaven, 
But through him, God also created the world. The Son is the co-creator with God. Nothing that the Father has made does not also have upon it the fingerprints of the Son. In the beginning, the Son was with the Father. The Father did nothing without the Son. All this, indeed, all the breathtaking beauties of our, of this creation are the cooperative products of God and the Son. From the majestic marble mountains to the delicate crocus flower, from the gigantic blue whales to microscopic leeches, these were all designed, fashioned, and produced by God through the Son. In fact, this uh, phrase echoes passages in the Old Testament, but particularly Jewish literature, about the wisdom of God. In fact, there's likely a polemical edge to this line, for it was popular among Hellenistic Judaism to venerate wisdom as a principle alongside God. Wisdom was praised as an impersonal force by which creation came to be and the world was governed. The author here, though, identifies wisdom not as some impersonal force, but with the Son. God's wisdom is not some abstract power or principle, but it is the Son. From eternity past to the never-ending future, the Son has been, the Son is, and the Son always will be. Through the Son, this creation began, and as the heir, new creation will never end. The splendor of the Son is already arresting, but our author is just getting warmed up. For next, he continues to list the ways of the Son's greatness. Next, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's essence. Now, these two phrases overlap in order to amplify. That is, to begin with, there is God's glory and his essence. Now, in the Old Testament, glory stood for God's own person and presence. All of Yahweh's transcendent majesty, his overwhelming power, his inapproachable holiness as the one self-existent and eternal God, this is compressed in Yahweh's glory. Also, Yahweh's glory of the Old Testament was manifest primarily by light, blindingly and searingly hot light. The glory was the all-consuming fire of Yahweh wrapped in dark clouds to protect the people of God. Thus, the author here pairs the glory with God's essence, his nature, and the Son is related to the essence of glory In the most intimate manner, the sun is the radiance of glory. He is the light shining and going forth from the source of glory. Radiance makes visible the perfect brilliance of God. Indeed, you cannot ultimately separate radiance from the light source. They're one and the same, distinguishable, but inseparable. Likewise, the imprint of God's essence is the visible stamp of God's nature. An exact representation of God's nature makes visible the invisible God. Simply put, the Son is God and fully God at that. 
John wrote in his gospel, the word was God. Paul stated Christ is the image of the invisible God. And now Hebrews follows suit. The Son is the radiance of glory, the imprint of his essence. The Son is the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and glory to the Father and the Spirit. Thus, he shares in another perfection with God. He upholds everything by his powerful word. That is, creation took place through the Son, and the providential sustaining and maintaining of this world happens by the Son. This means that all the cycles and processes of the natural world to promote life is also done by the Son. Who sends the rain? The Son. Who stores water and glacials and snowpack in the winter to release them in spring rivers? The Son. The oak tree grows, the mayflies get their day, the eagles hatch by the sun. From the juicy red strawberry to the lush ripe tomato to the spicy serrano that we so enjoy, they all come from the sun. Smoked brisket, fresh eggs, and warm sunshine are gifts of the sun. Upholding all things, though, includes also history. The sun is the sovereign over history. This means that war in the Middle East, famine in Africa, corruption in America, inflation and unemployment, all of these are under the purview of the sun. The bull and bear markets of Wall Street, grandma's cancer, and the wart between your toes, these two are controlled by the sun. And the reins of his providential care is his powerful word. The sun speaks and things happen. A single syllable slips through the sun's mouth and accomplishes its purpose always. By a single utterance of the sun, a tornado hits Wichita, a girl is born in Seattle, and a butterfly gets its wings. But the resume of the sun reads on. Next, he made purification for sin. Now, after all the high-soaring grandeur of the sun in the previous lines, this line takes a nosedive into blood and smoke. For purification of sin is the work of a priest by offering a sacrifice. It requires a death, a dabbing of blood, a burning of flesh, and the taking out of the ashes. This portrays the sun as a priest who dealt with sin. Indeed, purification for sin is an act of atonement. By purification, sins are forgiven, wrath is appeased, justice is satisfied, and us sinners are reconciled to the living God. Without purification, there is only death and judgment. But with it, there is life and covenant communion between God and humans. Our covenant life and our eternal destiny rest upon the purification of our sins. Moreover, as the author writes, he made purification by himself. This implies more than just priesthood. For the Old Testament priests administered purification by a blood or a lamb, but they didn't purify with themselves. Such self-purification Hence, it's self-sacrifice. 
It points to the priest becoming the sacrifice, which is exactly what the son did. Upon the cross, the son died to wash away our transgressions. The son gave his blood to quench the wrath due to us to atone and reconcile us to the father. The heir of new creation, the co-creator, the Lord of providence, and the radiance of God's essence died. This one line encompasses the entire humiliation of the Son, from his incarnation to his priestly work upon the cross. The infinite wonders of our redemption are summarized in this single statement having made purification for sins. The infinite Son died for your sins. And for his priestly work upon the cross, the Son then took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. From the lowest pit of the grave, the Son rocketed to the highest chair. Of course, the right-hand seat next to God is a kingly position. The right-hand ruler is the vice-regent. The royal right hand governs and oversees everything in the kingdom of God and in his authority. This right-hand glory was then the inheritance of the Davidic covenant. This position was won by fulfilling all righteousness and justice. Ideal active obedience merited the right hand on high. This assumes the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. It heralds the inauguration of the kingdom, and it presupposes the ratification of the new covenant. By the blood of the covenant, the Son took his place as the monarch of the everlasting kingdom of God. Indeed, each of these lines here in this introduction to the book are like deep wells, of the most precious and beautiful truths about the Son and our salvation in him. And piled on top of each other, they overwhelm us with their magnificent sweetness, like a decadent, multi-layered chocolate cake, nearly too rich to eat. Yet with this cake layered and iced, now the author adds the finishing touch by writing the Son's name on top. Having become superior to the angels, he inherited a more excellent name. Now, this doesn't contradict the Son's full and glorious divinity. Rather, refers to his office. It builds off the Son's humiliation on the cross. As the messianic king-priest, the Son became the lowest low to earn the highest station for himself in heaven. By taking on our weak flesh, the Son far surpasses the angels. And to be higher than the angels spells worship. Indeed, it is unlawful and foolish to try and worship angels. But one far greater than angels is worthy of our veneration, reverence, and worship. The Lord of angels call, the Lord of angels calls for our faith, And our loyalty. In fact, there may be here a slight apologetic. For within a current Judaism at the time, there was a preoccupation with angels, even spilling over to the worship of them. 
More so, Judaism held that the Mosaic law was inaugurated through angels. So for the Son to be superior to angels means no angel worship and that he is the Lord of a new and better covenant. Indeed, the Son inherited a most excellent name than angels. A name expresses one's identity and character. To inherit a name is to win a new station, a higher level of honor and fame. After the son's humiliation to make purification, he merited the name above all names. He ascended to the greater glory, to the perfect and eternal expression of his kingship, priesthood, and prophethood. Indeed, it's hard to think of a more compressed an exhaustive ode to the Son's glory than here. In such a short time span, over four brief verses, the author of Hebrews presses into these verses the infinite wonders of the Son. He includes the Son being divine, the creator, the wisdom, and the providential Lord. He mentions the Son as prophet, priest, sacrifice, king, and mediator. Kingdom and covenant merge here in the Son. The primordial, from the primordial past and to the internal future, these are held together by the Son. This is such a stately and beautiful ode to the Son that our only nitpick with it is that the author didn't set it to music. This is prose dying to break forth into song. But why open this sermonic letter in this way? The author doesn't bother here saying greetings. He doesn't write, dear saints of so-and-so church. He doesn't follow any of the normal features of an opening for a letter. Instead, the author launches into this magnificent ode to the sun. Well, why? Well, when your faith is lethargic, when going back to the synagogue is a temptation, when persecution for faith is intensifying against you, what is the best medicine? It's to be reminded of your Savior. Weak faith needs to be led back to the mighty work of the Son. Wandering faith needs to be brought back to the sufficiency of the Son. When our love grows cool towards the Son, we need to be restored by the absolute loveliness of the Son. In this way, Hebrews exhibits the commitment to Christ-centered preaching. Why do we need to hear the gospel of the Son Lord's Day after Lord's Day? Because the Son is the author of our faith. The Son is the vibrance of our love. The Son is the power and grace to preserve us in him with loyalty and assurance of faith. For these saints who are feeling cool towards the Son, the author hits them with a rhetorically lovely ode to the Son. He woos them back to the majestic honor and charming love of the Son. But there are two things here that the author suppresses for suspense. The first 
is the resurrection. He assumes the resurrection between making purification and sitting at the right hand. Everything the Son does here is approbated, ratified, and published in the resurrection of the Son. But the author makes us wait for this explicitly to tease out later the wonders of the Son's resurrection. Secondly, the author keeps us on the edge of our seat by not naming the most excellent name inherited by the Son. In fact, he makes us wait till chapter 2 when he will finally inherit or uh, trumpet that inherited name, Jesus. Jesus is the name above all names. Jesus far outstrips any of the name of the angels or the prophets of old. Indeed, this is why our faith should not stumble or fade. This is why we should never contemplate leaving the church. This is why persecution is a small thing. Because in these latter days, God has spoken to us in Jesus. After this ode on the resplendence of the sun, the author has us chomping at the bit to cry out the name Jesus, which is the best spiritual medicine for us. Thus, dear saints, may you fall in love all over again with Jesus by the prologue of Hebrews. May your faith sink deeper into the truth of Jesus. And may your loyalty grow in devotion to Jesus. And may this ode to Jesus make us break forth into song so that we might worship and adore Jesus Christ, the Son, who has inherited the best and highest name. To him be the glory, to Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.